0: So this morning we'll start in chapter 6 of Acts, and as I get to my notes, you guys can be turning there, because I really have them here somewhere. Oh, there they are. In Proverbs chapter 14, verse 4, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 6. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 4 says, where there are no oxen, the trough is clean, but much increase comes by the strength of an ox. Now you might be asking, why in the world is he reading that? That seems kind of random. Well, the early church has been multiplying. Every week, as we've read in the book of Acts, we've seen more people added to the Lord. And as they've been added to the Lord, you might not know this, but when you add people, you add problems. Um, those of you moms that are here this morning, you, have you, as you have more kids, there's more problems. There's more issues to deal with. And so, as the early church is growing, it's in its infant stages, and it's no different. As there's more people, there's more problems. <sighs> But as that proverb says there, if there's no oxen in the stall, the trough's clean. There's no problems, right? But no work's getting done. But when there's many oxen in the stall, a lot of work can get done. And so the same is true in Acts chapter 6, verse 1. It says, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint. So more people, more complaints, right? So the problem arose last week that they had this faction this small group that was not getting ministered to the way they ought to be according to the word of the lord there was a group of hellenistic or greek widows jewish widows that were not being having food distributed to them uh, during the daily distribution and so they felt like they weren't being treated fairly compared to the other jewish widows and so a complaint rose a practical need was there and then the apostles called from among them they said we want you we want to you guys to pick out from among you seven who are full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom and who are faithful men, and we will commission them basically to fulfill this need. So in the early church, there was these needs, and they didn't yet have a system, as it were, for fulfilling those needs. And so they they brought faithful men forward. They laid hands on them. They prayed over them. They said, we're going to free you up to go and serve these widows. So these men are doing ministry. Now, we don't think of ministry as someone that's literally waiting tables or serving food. We think of someone teaching a Bible study or someone going out and preaching a crusade like Billy Graham. But God reaches people more times, I think, through people meeting practical needs than he does through the preaching of the gospel without that. Now he can do both. Many times there are people that are seeing that they have a need, they don't know how to fulfill it. And so when they hear the preaching of the gospel, whether it's on TV, whether it's through a crusade, whether it's through someone they work with, they will receive Jesus Christ. But many times it's a practical way that a need is met to open the realization that they have a spiritual need as well. That's what I was talking about when I talked about the woman at the well. She was there getting water for her animals in the middle of the day. And Jesus was there talking about water. But he wasn't talking about the water she was getting ready to drink out of the the well. She was talking about living water that would always satisfy once she drank, drank of it. She wouldn't have to come back to a well. Jesus himself is the water in the well that he was speaking of. And it would lead to eternal life. So as they've met this need, notice that the deacons are ministering to the temple. Now, the deacons that have just been set up, they've been set up to minister to the church of God. But what is the church? The church is not a building. We're just in a storefront, right? The church is not the the, um, brick building down the road. According to the Bible, the church is the people that God has assembled together a holy, called-out assembly of men and women that have been called to follow Jesus Christ. They've been saved by Him. They've been called to be spending time with Him and to be sent by Him. And so these deacons, while they will meet practical needs, later the deacons become those that would minister to the practical needs inside the church and out, not only the daily distribution, but also, you know, making the coffee or, you know, um, sweeping the floors, whatever needs done, but they're also called upon to meet practical needs for people's homes and also spiritual needs for people. And we'll see this later, but they're ministering to the church of God. The church is not a building, it's the people. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, Paul writes to the, the, the believers in Corinth. He says, do you not know that your body, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Your body is where God has chosen to make his presence known. Now, in the former days, in the Old Testament, they had what was called the temple. And before that was the tabernacle that they would, basically a big tent that they would put together and they would carry around. Everywhere God moved to, they would follow him. He was literally giving them a physical presence at night. It was a pillar, excuse me, during the day, it was a pillar of cloud. During the nighttime, it was a pillar of fire to give them light. And so when he would move, they would follow, they would set this tabernacle up, and his presence would be in that tabernacle. Later, the temple was built, and I think it's 1 Kings chapter 8. Don't, well, it might be. Anyway, see me later, I'll tell you if you want to know. But basically, they built the temple, King Solomon did, and on the day that they dedicated it, the Lord physically showed his presence going in to the temple, and it was so thick the lord's presence that they couldn't even see what was going on they had to they were playing worship music and his presence was made known in a very real way but every time that god has called people to worship him he's made his presence known in a specific location but now in the church of jesus christ he has ascended into heaven he sent his holy spirit and his holy spirit dwells in you and i so for deacons to minister to the temple would be to meet practical needs and meet spiritual needs for the members of the church, the people. And so always keep that in mind when you think about the church. Think about the people that assemble and make up the church. The people that have been saved by God's grace to be blocks, fit together. We don't call it a gathering. We call it an assembly. And I love how my my pastor puts it. He says, it's kind of like his kids when they put away their Legos. They have a big pile and they pile them all together and then they put them in their box. That's how you gather the Legos. But when they're assembled, they have a specific purpose. They look like something. They're put together. Every little block has a meaning and a purpose in the structure that they're building. Now, sometimes more, the structures look like something when kids are building them. And sometimes they just look like a blob or a building. Oh, it's a skyscraper. you know. But the Lord has assembled you and I together as a group to be a testimony to the world. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So, these deacons have been set up, they've been uh, blessing the church, and they've been faithful. And as they're faithful, we get a a glimpse into the life of one of them this week. His name is Stephen. And so, in Acts chapter 6, verse 8, let's continue this morning, where it says, Stephen full of faith and power did great wonders and signs among the temple excuse me among the people I'm already getting my words mixed up stephen full of faith and power did great wonders and signs among the people so he was serving faithfully and he did great wonders and signs the work that God called him to, waiting tables, doing the practical, led him to need more help from the Lord, as I don't know about you guys, and many of you moms can probably attest to this more than us men, maybe not, but when you go to serve people and take care of their needs, especially children, it's hard. Some days you don't feel like it. And so as Stephen was meeting practical needs, and as he was serving It was probably hard many days. And so because it was hard, he knew he was called to do it anyway. He had to rely upon the Lord's strength to strengthen him in the work. And so as he was relying upon the Lord more and more each day, as the work became more and as the people became more, he was full of faith and power and he did great wonders and signs among the people. So as he served, he was emboldened in his faith. He was strengthened And then verse 9, it says, Then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen. Now this is literally, because I I read this and I was like, the synagogue of the freedmen, what is that? Well, it's literally just a synagogue that they called themselves the freedmen. They just had a little nickname for themselves. Uh, Which synagogue do you go to? I guess it's the freedmen synagogue. But in that group was Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, And they were disputing with Stephen. Now, if they were going to the temple, they were Jewish. And so, number one dispute that they had with Stephen, why are you telling people about Jesus? He was just some guy that was blaspheming, and we had him put to death. They didn't like Jesus. They didn't believe he was the Messiah. They thought he was just somebody that came along and said he was the Messiah, but really wasn't. They just thought he was a blasphemer. And so, they didn't like him talking about Jesus, but verse 10 says they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Another thing that they might have a problem with is that these if you'll notice it says they were Cyrenians, Alexandrians and those from Cilicia and Asia. They were all Hellenistic. They were all Hellenistic Jews. Now who had Stephen been called to serve the Hellenistic, Jewish women, the widows? And so you can imagine that Stephen, taking his calling very seriously, was, he was basically meals on wheels of that day. He had this ministry where he would distribute food. Well, he wasn't just going to take them food and go, God bless you. He was going to go take them that food, meet the practical need, and then he was going to explain to them about Jesus, the bread of life. Because even if they didn't have food, they could know that there's food that lasts forever food that we can eat of manna bread from heaven and so he's not just going to give them food and meet their temporary need he wants to meet their eternal need by telling them about jesus and so no doubt as he was doing this these men had a problem with it because they didn't believe in jesus and so they're like hey we got a problem with you and they dispute with them they get angry and stephen apparently responded to them verse 10 They were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. He didn't argue with them. He just explained to them why he was saying what he was saying, why he was doing what he was doing. And so because of the way that he responded, they were not able to resist him. They couldn't overcome what he was telling them. And so rather than just saying, hey, maybe you're right about this, Jesus. They got a little aggravated and they kind of rose uh, the way they opposed him. They resisted him. They disputed with him. And then verse 11 says, Then they secretly induced men to say, We've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, seized him, and brought him to the council. They also set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease. In other words, he continues to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. And so they have a problem with him. And so rather than try to deal with what he's actually done, they want to silence him. And so they try to stir up false witnesses against him. If you try to take someone to court, And you don't really have a testimony against him. You don't have any way to really prosecute them. What's the best way to get them? To lie. So because they have nothing really against him that's going to have any charges that would hold anything, cause him to have any consequences, they bring up people that are going to lie about it. This happens. People get a problem with you and they want to do whatever they can to get you in trouble. And so they're doing this with Stephen and they secretly... Basically, rise up false witnesses. Hey, so-and-so, why don't you go tell the council that Stephen's saying this and this when he wasn't? And so they lie about him. So, number one, they conspired against Stephen by stirring up false witnesses. Number one, to say that they heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. Now, why does this matter? Who's Moses? Well, we all know that he's just a man that God used. But to them, he was one of the biggies. In some ways, he was higher in their minds than God was. Number two, again, they set up more false witnesses to say that he will not cease to speak blasphemous words against this place. What's the place he's talking about? Well, I believe he was talking about the temple. They held the temple in very high regard. Look at this place that God has built. Look how wonderful and majestic it is. And they, they kind of, in a way, they worshipped it. And then number three, that he had spoken blasphemous words against the law. Of all things, they've spoken blasphemous words against the law. Now Moses, the temple, and the law. All three things are good things that God gave to the people of Israel. Moses, he used in a mighty way to give them the law. He also used Moses to draw them out of Egypt, which is where they were in bondage. They were slaves to the Egyptians. So God used Moses to bring them out of Egypt and to save them from oppression. Number two, the temple was a building that God gave them, a gift that God gave them, a place where they could worship who? God. Not the temple, but God. And number three, the law God gave to the nation of Israel for what purpose? In order to give them a mirror by which they could look at their lives. And as they tried to live out the law, that they would be able to realize that they needed a savior because they couldn't fulfill it. The law was never meant to save you and I. That's what they believed. If We follow the law. Then we will be in right standing with God. By the way, that's true. But if you've ever tried to follow the law, even the first 10 commandments, what you'll find out is that you're hopelessly lost without a savior that can fulfill those laws for you. And so the law, good. It points us to the need for salvation. The temple, good. A place to worship that God gave. Moses, good. A man that God used to deliver them from slavery. But not God. All of these things are good, but what we tend to do just like these um, religious leaders here, is rather than appreciating the gifts that God gives us, we turn around and we worship them. We worship, maybe not the law and Moses and the temple, but we worship things like our lawnmowers or our vehicles that God gives us as tools to drive to work or to take our kids to school. Rather than being appreciative to God for the things that He blesses us with, we turn around and we worship them. We have to be careful because if we start worshiping them, they're going to become idols and then they're going to get in between you and God. So he's showing them and he's going to show them that those these things are good and they're gifts from God. They're not God and they can't save. They can't bless us. We can't have a relationship with a building like a temple. We can't have a relationship with Moses. He's dead. We can't have a relationship with any of these things that we worship. They're not important. Not as important as God. So verse 14 says, For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. Now, had Jesus said he was going to destroy the temple? No. This is another place where they misquote Jesus. And the enemies of God always misquote Jesus be careful about what they say because you need to go back to scripture and go, did Jesus really say that? Because Jesus never said he would destroy the temple. As a matter of fact, when he was speaking, he said, destroy this temple. Speaking of himself, it just so happened he was standing next to the temple when he said it. He said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. And they all go, wait a minute, how are you gonna raise up the temple in three days? It took us years to build this thing. And we did it with all the tools, and we got all the the wood from the cedars of Lebanon, and we got all the stones cut by stone cutters. You don't have any experts. How are you going to build the temple back up? But he wasn't talking about the building. He was talking about himself. You're going to destroy this temple, and after three days, God's going to raise me from the dead, and then you'll see that I am he who you guys claim to worship. So... He never said he was going to destroy the temple, but they heard it and they go, he's going to knock down our building. What in the world? Where are we going to go to worship? This blasphemous man, but that's not what he was speaking of. So verse 15 says, all who sat in the council, those that were listening to to the testimonies against Stephen, all who sat in the council, looking steadfastly at Stephen, they saw his face as the face of an angel. I'm amazed by this. When people accuse me of things, I'm going to go ahead and go out on a limb and say, when they're looking at me while I'm getting accused, I'm not going to be having the face of an angel. I'm actually probably going to have this nasty look on my face like, I'm going to get you. How dare you speak about me that way? But not Stephen. Stephen looked at them. He saw them. He heard what they said against him. And I wonder if in his mind he was thinking, this is the same thing they did to Jesus. This is the same thing they did to my Savior. They spoke unwell of him and he blessed them. They cursed him, he blessed them. I get to be like Jesus to them. What an opportunity, what a blessing. And so he begins this big, um, I was gonna call it a diatribe, but it's not. He's gonna begin this big uh, testimony to what God has done, his faithfulness to the nation of Israel throughout the years, despite their unbelief. And he's gonna give it to them, the truth, it's very true, but he's going to give it to them in love even though they hate him. They absolutely hate him. We'll find out at the end of the next chapter that they don't hate him so much as they want to kill him. They want him gone. That's what hate is, wishing someone didn't exist. And so they, they ask him, the high priest, who's basically the judge over this trial. They've levied all the charges against Stephen. And then the judges, basically the, the council members, the high priest Looks at Stephen and he says, Are these things so? Are these things true? Have you said these things? Verse 2 says, He said, Notice how he addresses them. He doesn't say, Hey, you jerks. He says, Brethren and fathers, listen. I don't know about you guys, but I don't respond to my enemies that way. Stephen does. He speaks up. He has authority. He has the truth. By all means, he could have been indignant. But he wasn't. He was like Jesus. He said, brethren and fathers, my kinsmen, my people, you know me. He says, brethren and fathers, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran. And he said to him, get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. So then he, Abraham, came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. That's Genesis chapter 12, if you want to go back and read it later. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved him to his, this land in which you now dwell. And God gave him no inheritance in it, not even enough to set his foot on. But when Abraham, even when Abraham had no child, God promised to give it to him for a possession and to his descendants after him. In other words, God met with Abraham in Mesopotamia, which we know as Ur of the Chaldeans. And while Abraham was living there amongst pagans, amongst non-believers, God decided, I'm going to reveal myself to that guy. And at that point, his name was Abram. And so he said, Abram, I want you to get up. I want you to leave your people. And I want you to go to a land I will show you. He never said, hey, go exactly 15 miles due south. Uh, There will be a river there. Make a left and go. No, he didn't give directions. He said, leave your people, leave your family, and I'm going to send you to a land that I will show you. And so Abraham, being a man of faith, way more faith than I think I have, he got up and he left. But he was human like you and I. And rather than being completely obedient, he left, but he took his dad with him to a place called Haran was not where God had showed him to go. And when he was there, God revealed to him, after his father passed away, God told him once again, leave this place, go to a land I will show you. And so Abram went, he ended up in this land, and he never possessed it. But God promised him, I'm going to give this land to you down the road, and I'm going to give it to your descendants. Well, we think, okay, well, that's cool, except Abraham was old and had no children. He was like 80 years old. He said, I got no children, Lord, but I believe you. And then he continues, verse 6, God spoke in this way that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land and that they would bring them into bondage and oppress them 400 years. He tells him ahead of time, I haven't given you this land yet, but here's what's going to happen to your descendants that you haven't even had yet. Here's what's going to happen to your children. When you have children, there's going to be a time of famine, And they're going to go into Egypt. And during that time in Egypt, I'm going to raise up and deliver. We'll talk about that in a minute. But while they're in that land, they're going to be slaves. You haven't had children yet, but when you do, they're going to be slaves. And during that time that they're slaves, I will be with them there. They'll dwell in a foreign land and that they would bring, excuse me, they dwell... They will dwell in a foreign land and that they would bring them into bondage and oppress them for 400 years. And the nation to whom they will be in bondage, I will judge, said God, and after that they shall come out and serve me in this place. In other words, you're going to inherit this land, but it'll be after you die, and it'll be your descendants that will inherit it. When they come out of Egypt, I'm going to bring them out, I'm going to send them a deliverer, they're going to be slaves, I'm going to deliver, deliver them out of slavery, and then they will possess this land. I don't know about you guys, but that's faith. Okay, Lord, how's that going to look? You know, and so he believed him. Verse 8, then he gave him the covenant of circumcision. Here's a way you're going to remember this. Here's a way you're going to teach your children about this promise, this covenant. That's what covenant means, promise. This promise that I've made you so that you'll remember that I made it and that I'm going to be faithful. So when it happens, you can praise me for it. I'm going to give you this covenant called circumcision. Now, I'm not going to draw a picture, but most of you probably know what circumcision is. Well, here's where it started out. God gave it as a sign to the Jews before they were ever Jews. uh, He gave it as a sign to them that they would cut the foreskin of their, their male children. And when they would do that, it would be a sign to remember, why do we even do this? What's the point? And then at that point, they would be forced to remind each other, well, we're doing this because God promised us that after a time, he was going to give us the land of Canaan, which at the time was possessed by pagan nations. So God said he was going to be faithful and give us this land. But for now, we're waiting until he fulfills the promise. So that sign that he gave them was to remind them. So verse 9, the patriarchs becoming envious sold Joseph into Egypt, but God was with him. So we're fast-forwarding through the nation of Israel and the history. He's telling all these stories to this council because these were religious men that knew the Old Testament. And he's showing them, yes, God blessed you. Yes, here again, God blessed you. He sent a deliverer to you. But every time, he didn't do it because you deserved it. He didn't do it because you were a holy people. He called Abraham before he ever knew God. He promised Abraham this land Not because of what Abraham did, but because he chose to. So don't think too highly of yourselves. And so these council members would hear this and go, oh. Or maybe they'd go, that's not the way I read it. But Stephen's revealing the heart of the Lord through these Old Testament stories so that they'll see God's faithfulness, not their faithfulness. And so verse 9, the patriarchs becoming envious. The patriarchs are the twelve sons of Jacob. Jacob being the father of nations, and he changed his name later to Israel. They were all sons of Jacob, and they sold the youngest, Joseph, into Egypt, verse 9, but God was with him, and he delivered him out of all his troubles, and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. Now a famine and a great trouble came over all the land of Egypt and Canaan, and our fathers found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers first, meaning his 12 sons. And the sec, actually 11 by that time, because Joseph had been sold into Egypt into slavery. And the second time Joseph was made known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to the Pharaoh. And then Joseph sent and called his father Jacob and all his relatives to him, 75 people, So Jacob went out to Egypt and he died, he and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem, laid in the tomb that Abraham bought for a sum of money. Remember, Abraham bought this tomb in the land of Canaan, even though he owned no land there. It was a step of faith. He said, the Lord said he was going to send us back to the land. And so I'm going to bury my wife here. I'm going to bury my children here. And then later his children would bury, they would have themselves buried there as a memorial going God's going to send us back here one day. We may as well be buried there so they can come visit our grave. And so Abraham bought for a sum of money from the sons of Hanor, the father of Shechem, those that owned the land at the time. Okay, so I know that this is a lot of information because it's even making my head spin. And I've been studying it this week. But what he's telling them is that there was a time where the nation of Israel was going to be in trouble. And so God raised up a deliverer by the name of Joseph. Now, Joseph was an unlikely candidate to be one who would deliver the nation of Israel out of a famine. But God chose to do this, and he started revealing it to Joseph through dreams. He said, I'm going to use you as a deliverer for the nation of Israel. But when I use you, you're going to be over all your brothers. Imagine this. God tells Joseph, hey, one day I'm going to raise you up, and you're going to be basically the deliverer. You're going to save your older brothers. So Joseph gets all excited about this and he tells his brothers. What do you think his brothers had to say about that? They had to say, hey, you're you're a a little runt. You're a turd. You're not going to deliver us from anything. As a matter of fact, here's a noogie. You know, let's start getting him, picking on him. And then they take him out to a field. One day he meets them out in the field to check on them at his dad's um, instruction. He said, go check on your brothers. see how they're doing. Now, Abraham was a little bit soft on his youngest son because, well, he liked him the most him a coat of many colors you guys might remember that story but basically his brothers recognized that and they were kind of a little bitter about their younger brother and so because of that because of him having his dreams of splendor and being in charge of them uh, they were a little aggravated and they held a little grudge so when he came out to meet them in the field he basically said hey how you guys doing and they said hey (laughs) why don't we kill him we're tired of hearing his stories we're tired of dealing with them we don't like him that much anyway let's get rid of him they hated him and so uh, rather than doing that, one of the older brothers said, no, no, don't, don't kill him. We'll put him in this hole for a little while. We'll come back. But we need to really think this through. Well, that brother, uh, some, something happened. And basically, they didn't end up killing him. But instead, they had a little remorse. They said, we won't kill him, but we will get rid of him. Let's sell him to these Egyptian slave traders. And so they sold him into slavery. They got some money for it. And they went back and told their dad, hey, I don't know what happened. I think he got mauled by a bear." He's dead. So, uh, sorry. <laughs> they brought back a garment, his colorful uh, garment that he had, and they covered it in goat blood so they, they, they could pretty much tell him, hey, I don't know, he's dead. This is way beyond bullying. <laughs> but what happened through that is that God was going to use Joseph as a deliverer. He'd already showed Joseph that. But Joseph sold into slavery, but God went with him. And God still used Joseph as the deliverer because as he went to the nation of Egypt, he got favor with his master, then he got in trouble, and when he got in trouble, it wasn't, he didn't really do anything wrong, but he got in trouble, he got put in jail, and during that time, he gained favor with the jailkeeper. And long story short, he ended up becoming, because he had such a great reputation, he ended up becoming basically the second of all of Egypt in the leaders. He was second only to Pharaoh. And so God had his hand on his life. He raised him up to a position of power and he used him to interpret the dream of the Pharaoh. Now, the Pharaoh had a dream and basically the interpretation that Joseph gave, because God gave it to him, was that for seven years, you're going to have years of plenty. And for seven years, you're going to have a famine after that. So when that happens you got to come up with a plan. And so the Pharaoh goes, well, what are we going to do if we're going to have a famine? And Pharaoh, And he asked Joseph, who gave the interpretation of the dream, Joseph said, during the seven years of plenty, we'll have more food than we need. Let's store back a bunch. Basically, they raised the taxes because you had to give some of your crops as taxes. So they doubled the taxes. But God used that and all that extra grain to sustain them through the seven years of famine. My point is that God used Joseph because when Jacob and his brothers came back, they came to Egypt to get help, and when they got there, who did they find? They didn't recognize him because he was a little older, he had a beard on his face. But they looked at him, and he recognized them, and he eventually revealed himself to them. He says, I'm your younger brother. And they said, we're so sorry that we delivered you because now he's a man of power. You know, you can have him killed. We're so sorry, you know, we were young and we made stupid decisions. And Joseph said, it's okay, because what you meant to harm me, God meant for good. And so this is happening all throughout the nation of Israel. And this is Stephen's testimony to these people. And later we'll get a little bit more, but I think we're going to stop there for this week. And I just want to make the point that as Stephen's giving this address, he's showing these Council members, these high priests, that just like Joseph, who was the deliverer for the nation of Israel, just like Moses, who is a deliverer for the nation of Israel, God has delivered you guys from your trouble in the past. And every time you rejected them, you rejected the deliverer that God sent. You rejected Moses and then you rejected Joseph. But God delivered you anyway. And so in the same way, Stephen's going to reveal to them this Jesus who you're against, who you hate, who you had killed. He was the deliverer that God sent. He was the Messiah. And so just because you killed him doesn't mean that God can't be faithful past your blunder. God's still going to use him if you're willing to accept him. But I love how Stephen reacts to them. More than anything, if we can take that away today, look at how Stephen responded to his enemies. He didn't hate them and say, I'm never talking to you again. What he said was, let me explain to you the reason for the hope that lies within me. Let me explain to you the reason for Jesus and why you really need to check your motives on why you deny him. He's our savior. And so um, may the Lord give us the heart of Stephen and the desire to share the truth with people. But not just the truth, but why we believe the truth. Look at how reasonable this is. He's going throughout what they understand about God, and he's explaining their misunderstandings. He's saying, I know that you think this, but look at what God did. Look at our own history and see how God's been faithful. Consider that, and perhaps you might receive it. Because we'll find out next week that even though all these guys are going to reject this very reasonable, this very awesome testimony he's giving, there's going to be one man in there that's going to be touched By this Stephen. Because Stephen had a heart for those that were dead in their trespasses and sins. He had a heart for those that were against God. He loved them. And we're going to see that the Apostle Paul. Because of Stephen's faithfulness. Because of his testimony. Because of his willingness to put his own life on the line. Because these people are going to eventually stone Stephen to death. For being so bold. But there's going to be one. Apostle Paul that's actually going to receive this testimony and not respond to it right away, but down the road, God's going to reach him and and reveal to him, hey, that's Stephen. He was giving you the right testimony. You need to receive it. You need to soften your heart. You need to humble yourself. You need to ask for forgiveness from me because I want to use you for something greater than your life of sin, your life of religion has gotten you. I want to redeem your life. So may that be our heart. May we be able to receive that kind of testimony. So, Father, thank you for the testimony of Stephen. Thank you for his heart, for his fellow man, even the ones that wanted to kill him, even the ones that wanted to lie about him. Lord, thank you that he was willing to take five minutes and to share the testimony of Jesus Christ and the testimony of how God was faithful throughout his life. Lord, please give us a heart for the lost. Help us to remember where we came from, Help us to see your faithfulness and to rejoice over it and to share it with others. And Lord, please help us to remember how much we've been forgiven and that we're really not much other than sinners saved by grace. Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you for Mother's Day. Thank you for the way that moms reveal to us your love for us and your sensitivity to us. Lord, help us to be a blessing to them today and to honor them in the way that uh, that we love them, Lord. Help us to appreciate the creatures that you've given us to our moms. The nurture and the testimony. And Lord, thank you for the moms in our church that have brought their kids here this morning. It's not usually easy to get kids, no matter how many you got, ready for church. But Lord, thank you that they are investing in their children in a way that will last beyond their years. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.